you do. For those who, who aren't aware, yesterday we uh, laid to rest our sister, Rusty Burgundier. Uh We had a wonderful home going for her up at South Mountain. And uh, it was interesting, you know, I learned that the name Burgundier can be pronounced about six different ways. <laughs> and that every member of the family pronounces it differently from the other. <laughs> So all these years of feeling guilty of not being able to pronounce her last name well, I feel better now. <laughs> I feel enlightened. When I first came, I was trying to pronounce it because I'm Canadian, in like a French-Canadian name, like uh, Bourgoignet or something like that. So they corrected me on that pretty first up, you know, really quickly. Anyway, we had a, a beautiful home going and a good time together with family. And uh, pray for the family. There, This is a time where, you know, I know she died back in April, and it's taken a while to do this, but, you know, this makes it all fresh again when you come to the cemetery and you come to do these things together. So be praying for the family. They'd appreciate it very much. Let's pray together as we get ready. Heavenly Father, we are here to serve you. And, Lord, we open our hearts and our minds. We are here to hear your word, and we're here together to share in your supper, one that you instituted with your disciples. And Lord, we see in it the shed blood of Christ, the broken body that you gave on our behalf as a gift so that we could have eternal life. And Lord, this morning we pray that you will just make us keenly aware of that, not just this morning, but all through this week as we go. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our series uh, in Revelation called Famous Last Words, although today our study is a little more like a communion meditation than it is a sermon. We're shortening things down a bit, and I, I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, in our study, we've seen how Rome was viciously persecuting Jews and Christians in the first century, and, and how that plays out in the vision that Jesus gave John, which became the book of Revelation. Several times, both in the individual uh, messages at the beginning of Revelation to the seven churches, uh, and then a little later on in some of the recent chapters, um, we've seen a particular word come up over and over again. And that word, if we can make it work, is endure. You've seen it again and again, and you're going to see it again and again before we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus commends the church because they have endured. But he also calls the church to endure, to endure in the face of hardship and suffering. And we are promised that those who do endure, who do continue faithfully in Jesus Christ to the end, they will be rewarded and have special blessings as they come to heaven. The question I think that has been on my mind and maybe on yours too is, okay, yes, we're to endure. But how do we endure in the face of really intense suffering when everything in you wants to quit? You know, how do you endure when your own life is threatened? How do you endure when your family is threatened? How do you endure when everything you have in your world is taken away from you? How do you endure in those situations? We've often partnered with the Voice of the Martyrs to pray for the persecuted church at different times in the year, and some of us are using that prayer calendar and praying every day for persecuted Christians. And, you know, many people around the world right now are experiencing intense persecution, and they're suffering. Today, 
I want to have us think a little bit about what it takes to endure suffering with your faith intact, and then to have a look at, at what happens when persecuted people die for their faith, because that's what we're seeing at the beginning of Revelation chapter 15. We're only going to look at the first four verses today. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview between um, a theologian that I've been reading and listening to over the last few years. His name is Mir Oops, let me get it up there. Miroslav Volf. And um, he was interviewing a fellow by the name of Fyodor Rechenek. I'm going to try and get that right. You think I had trouble with Burgunier? <laughs> um, I put their names up here because both because it's hard to pronounce them. But if you haven't heard of Miroslav Volf yet, you're going to. This is a guy who will knock your socks off. They, they call him the bridge builder because he's able to take faith and bring it into societal settings, into public life, and engage people at every kind of level, politics, economics, all kinds of different ways. And you'll hear him quoted over and over again. And the thing that I find really cool is, is that he is doing a podcast from Yale University. Now, we don't think of the big university campuses as a hotbed for Christianity, but, but this is a Christian program, and it's designed to teach us how to engage our faith with the people around us, and it's pretty cool. So this week he was interviewing um, this Pastor Reichnitz, and he was talking about what it's been like to be a Christian in Ukraine since the war began. There's the pastor right there in the middle, doing it in the street because at that point there was no church to do communion in. And um, I was struck as I listened to his testimony about surviving, your faith surviving in a time of intense pressure, how similar his experience is to the people that we've been studying in the book of Revelation, people who are under extreme persecution. And, and I look at what his testimony was, and I marvel at the level of suffering that he's been through, and yet his faith is still strongly intact. In Ukraine, their particular faith isn't under attack, but the whole country is being invaded, as you know, since 2022. Where it's similar to what we've been talking about is that Christians have to decide how are they going to live their faith or not when most of what they have is gone. And it's a very similar kind of decision. You know, just before the war began, uh, Pastor Rationates lost his wife to illness and then six months into the war, suddenly his son died in the middle of the night. No explanation. His heart just stopped. And he was a healthy, uh, athletic young man. He was an expert in Internet engineering. And uh, he spoke four languages, had a vibrant faith, helped his father in the church at various times. And his heart just stopped. And the only theory they have is that the pressure of all the things that are going around them in the war took its toll on his body, and it just quit. Fyodor pastored a church near Kiev, and, and when that region was occupied, everybody had to get out. They all fled their apartments, and, and they had to leave the church building behind as the tanks rolled up. And eventually, when they were finally able to return, much of what they had was ruined or destroyed. The buildings in the area were salted with mines so that they were all ready to explode. 
He said that the things they found inside the church when they returned to it were horrifying. He describes the area as an apocalyptic scene. This is located in a town called Bucha, and you may have heard of Bucha in the news. Uh, they call it the, the, the Bucha Slaughter sometimes, or the Bucha Massacre. Um, it, where this church was located, the Russians came in and they committed mass murder of Ukrainian citizens. They rounded up 419 people. They had their hands tied behind their back and had them kneel down and they executed them all in the square. A basement between a local camp or underneath a local camp was turned into a torture chamber. You know, we read about such things and, and I think it, when we read about them, we read about them in the abstract. It's easy for us to kind of do this and keep them far away because they're so far away. As the crow flies, Kiev is 4,854 miles away, approximately. That's a world away. That makes it easy to ignore. That's nowhere near us. That doesn't affect us. That doesn't affect me. I can keep it at a distance like that. But let me present a scenario that's a little different. You might have to use your imagination here for a moment. What if what happened there happened here? What if it happened right here in Waynesboro? What if half of our buildings in town were destroyed by bombs or missiles? What if 419 of our friends and neighbors and family were taken out and shot? What if you couldn't drive out to Rouserville without fear of driving over a mine in the road? What about being forced out of your house? And when you come back, you find that your house is no longer livable because that's what they found. What about this building we're in right now? What if this building were desecrated, that the inside was so ruined it couldn't be used as a church anymore? See, it's, it's easy for us to keep these things at a distance unless we start thinking about them in our own setting and what would happen if it was this neighborhood that we were talking about. And it kind of gives us a different perspective, doesn't it? Well, let me ask you something. In the midst of such a scenario, where is your Christian faith? Is your Christian faith intact? Is it just gone? Have you embraced Jesus more? Or have you rejected Jesus because he didn't step in and stop the missiles? Where is your faith in the middle of this? What's happening with it? What happened to your faith? You know, when the war began, Ukrainian um, Christians, they were convinced that God was going to intervene. They said to themselves, surely this just can't go on. This is so ludicrous. They believed that God was going to directly intervene by supernatural forces and just stop it. But here it is, more than a year later, and it continues. You know, many went through this past winter with no electricity. Many had no water. Can you imagine going through a winter with no heat and no water in your home? Unbelievable. It was grueling. So what's happened to God's church in the middle of this suffering? Well, the church became the church. 
When aid came, the church became the center for distribution. And, you know, people came in droves to receive aid from the church. And, and the church grew. About 70% of the church today are not members of the church and were not part of that congregation when it began. About 70%. I think they said there were there about 300 people when they started. Now there are about 700, 750. And, and this is in a place where for a while they just had to meet outdoors because the building was not usable at all. And you've probably seen pictures of that on the internet of people doing communion or Catholic churches doing mass outside on the top of a pile of bricks because that's what they had. This church was really going through something special. The pastor was convinced that when the food ran out and all the materials ran out that they could give away, that all these people who had collected would go. But that's not what happened. The people stayed, and it continues to grow and thrive. Uh, Fyodor says, we learned this year to be prepared for the worst, but we hoped for the better. And uh, Miroslav Volf asked him the question. He said, where do you find hope in the middle of a situation like this? And he said, I found it in the scripture. He found it in the Old Testament prophets. He found it specifically in the minor prophets uh, like Nahum and uh, Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, the prophet cries out this way to God. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for your help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. I would imagine that, that when this pastor read this passage and, and thought through it, I bet he felt his own situation in this passage. You know, the, the prophets were often, many of the prophets were put to death and tortured in terrible ways. And many of the times when they're prophesying in the Old Testament period, there, there are some terrible things going on all around them. And I'm sure that this pastor, as he looked at this passage, saw their own situation in that all of this violence, all of this terrible stuff, and God doesn't seem to be stopping it. So what do we do with this? Well, he points out that at the end of Habakkuk, in chapter 3, God says, or, or at least the prophet says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Hind's feet in high places. Pastor Rationitz found hope and mission in that. And though it all goes away, he says, I still will find my joy in the Lord. He says, I will still trust the Lord. In him I will find my strength. Now, you can listen to the interview yourself. I encourage you to do that. If I can give you that information, I can put it up online. Um, but there are two things that really stood out to me as I was listening. You know, how are they enduring? How are these Christians enduring? How are they doing this? How are they applying this kind of scripture to their lives. 
Well, the first thing he said was be present. Be present. Well, what does he mean by that? They are very present in their community. They found ministry purpose in their losses. You know, they realized that everybody has lost something or someone in this community. Everybody. So they provide aid where they can, but mostly they provide friendship for people who really need that more than anything else. And they provide family because people need a place to be and be connected to. And so they minister to wounded soldiers and counsel them, and they minister to people whose hearts are wounded. They are being very present, and therefore they're manifesting the presence of Jesus in this really badly beaten community. The second thing he said is we preach hope. We preach hope. Because if there's one thing the Ukrainian people need right now, and that that desperate town might need more than anything, it's a message of hope. When I heard the interview, I, I did not find it very hard to kind of, you know, connect the dots to what we've been studying in Old Testament, or in, in Revelation, rather. Um, these struggling Christians are very similar in their mindset to the persecuted Christians of the first century. They have a different cause for their suffering. But the whole thing is very familiar. I don't have to look very far to see first century Christians ministering Jesus by being present in their own communities, by being light in the darkness, by being hope for people who have none. They preached hope in Jesus, and that's how they preached and so then we read you know in the history historical documents not christian documents uh you know secular historians wrote about all of these wild and crazy things that these christians did these people who had lost everything you know they're running out and saving children from being drowned in the river when people didn't want their children they just threw them away they left them out in the forest for the wild beasts to tear apart and the Christians would rush in and save them and raise them up. When there was a major uh, plague going on, twice there were major plagues, and Christians were the ones who rushed in as all the doctors and everybody rushed out. And you can go down through history and see over and over these situations. How can they do that? Why do they do that? That doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense in the context of what we just looked at in that scripture a moment ago. It only makes sense when we find our strength and our joy in the Lord, not in our situation. And it only makes sense when we look long-term and we see what's coming and we realize that it's so much better than what we have here and now. That the best thing that we ever experience here is only a tiny bit of what's going to come. Let me look at the first part of Revelation chapter 15. Keep us on track with our study this morning. At the first part of Revelation chapter 15, what's been going on? Well, we talked about that the last couple of weeks, how, how the Christians were being persecuted. They were being forced out of the market. They couldn't run their businesses because they refused to burn incense at an altar with a statue of the emperor. A little bit like what Kathy was talking about this morning. A big repeat. In fact, Nero 
built a statue of himself in the space that we know as the Colosseum today, and it was so big, they called it the Colossus. That's where Colosseum gets his name, was this statue that he had built to himself so that they would worship him. People who refused to sacrifice to the emperor at this altar, sometimes they were taken prisoner and put in prison. Sometimes they were made slaves. Sometimes they were put to death. They were made to act out in the, uh, the circuses, uh, these great dramas. So what would happen is they would tell these great Greek stories and they would take a Christian or they would take somebody who was one of their prisoners and they would make that person either the villain of the story or make that person the tragic hero who dies at the end. And that person would be forced in front of thousands of people to act out theater and then at the end, in the dramatic moment of the play, someone would come out and put them to the sword or cut their head off. Can you imagine such a thing? Being done for entertainment. So these Christians have been going through this horrible persecution, and at the beginning of this book, we hear John's warning that more is coming. You know, some of you haven't yet been tested, but a lot of you have been through some really hard times and you've endured. Well, you better keep enduring because it's going to get worse. And it does. And so we come into Acts 15, or Acts 15, and we come into Revelation 15, and at the beginning of Revelation 15, we suddenly we get this view of heaven. And what's happening? God is getting ready to pour out his final wrath. This is the end of the pouring out of his wrath. And we see all these things going on in heaven. And there's this incredible song that breaks out. Let me read it for you in context. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because... With them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea were those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. They held harps given to them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. They sang, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, you might recognize parts of that from the Song of Moses. But here they are. These are the people that we were talking about. These are the people who were going through the persecution. These are the people who were dying for their faith. And what happens? Here they are now in the throne room of God. And they are worshiping God. And they are celebrating the fact that God's name will be worshiped everywhere. That something better is coming. That God's righteous acts have been revealed this is the song of something better. Death is not the end. It's not. God cannot be defeated by tin gods who are masquerading as beasts or in magic statues. 
They can't defeat God. This is a victory song. It's sung with absolute confidence because they trust in the one that the song is about. And they sing, all nations will come and worship before you. In a lot of ways, this is our song. No matter what happens to us in the future, if we endure, this is our song. How did the first century Christians under persecution endure? They trusted God and they hoped for something better. In their enduring, they didn't stop believing and they didn't stop ministering Christ. In fact, they doubled down on everything. They ministered for Christ even harder. And history records the fact. How is this Ukrainian church surviving in Bucha? Enduring in the middle of terrible suffering. They trust in God. They minister for God. And they hope for something so much better that God has promised. If you want something to read, spend some time reading Hebrews chapter 11, what we sometimes call the faith chapter. And and there you see people hoping for something better and that becoming their motivation for serving God with their entire being. So where do you live? Do you live in a world without hope? More and more people seem to be giving up. More and more people are needing hope. I look at the news sometimes and I ask myself, can this get any sicker? Can this get any weirder, any meaner, more vicious? Can it get any further from God? You know, that's the thing that pops into my mind when I, I watch the news or listen or read it. Do you know that around you, people are asking these same questions? They can't believe it either. Here's a couple of action points that can help you endure what's happening and what's coming. Even if things turn out to be a worst case scenario, and they might sound familiar to you. Here's the first one. Be present. Be present. Be the friend. Be the neighbor that your friends need. Be the friend to the person you don't know yet the one who really needs a friend. Share what you can. Provide family. People need a place to be and belong. That's us. A place to fit where they're loved. That's our call. And also, we need to preach hope, just like the Ukrainians. Because the world surely needs hope. People are hoping about so many things that are just falling down. They're putting their faith in the wrong things. And we need to show them the hope that we have, the hope that you have, the reason for continuing, the reason and the motivation for serving and enduring to the end. A new day is coming. A whole new world is coming. And it's right here at the end of this book of Revelation where we see the promise. You know, the perspective of Revelation, it's not the short game, it's the long game. 
That's what counts. It's the endurance in the face of evil and suffering in the moment. But in the long term, no matter what, not abandoning your faith, but strengthening it. Because you know that what is coming is so much better than what you have right here and now. It's a great reason for keeping on. We're going to shift gears slightly and move to our time of communion, the Lord's Supper. But it's not all unrelated to what we're talking about this morning. The future promise of the coming Lord and a home in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth would only become possible because Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross for our sins and he was resurrected on the third day. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper this morning similar to what we did the last time last month. Um, when we give the invitation to come forward, we invite you to just at your own time, your own pacing when you're ready, to, to come to the communion table. And uh, we're using the pre-filled cups, and, uh, and uh, you know they have the bread on the bottom and the, the juice on the top. Um, but if you want to take a piece of matzo, you're welcome to do that. We'll have the matzo here on the table, so just break off a piece and take that. Um, if you cannot come forward or choose not to come forward, but would like to take communion this morning, uh, when we're ready to begin, just put your hand up and somebody will bring you communion elements so that you can do that. We ask that you, you know, take what you come to the table for and return to your seat with it and wait until all of us are served, and then we're going to take it together. We're going to start with a word of prayer. We're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord and to receive the Lord's Supper. We serve an open communion here, which means you do not have to be a member of the church in order to partake. Um, but we do encourage you, as the scriptures do, that you only take it if you are a believer in Jesus and have received Jesus into your life. If you have not done that, this is a very good time to do that. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess our sins to you now and we ask for your forgiveness. Create in us a clean heart and a right spirit. Lord, renew us, restore us, heal us, unite us, prepare us for the next part of our spiritual journey. Lord, in these quiet moments, we confess our sin and we seek your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We love you. And we offer ourselves in service to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.